0: So I
1: sent out um, outlines for everybody. I hope you guys got them. And I sent out um, the online harmony for anybody who didn't have a harmony with them, so you can use that. It's not Arielle's and it's not uh, At Robertson's, but it's a harmony. So if you didn't, if you didn't see it yet, go ahead and check your emails. If you didn't get one,
2: raise your hand. Raise your hand if you got one. Did you guys get the harmony? Okay. Okay. Yay! Alrighty.
1: All the Bible students, get out your pencil and pen.
2: So, tonight we're going to look at the third lesson in the life of Messiah which is taught every year at Camp Shama If you can make your way out there, it's an awesome uh, place to go. Not New York City, because that place is horrible right now, but in the upstate in the Adirondack Mountains, beautifully situated and snuggled into that uh, valley there. It's a beautiful place. So uh, we're just going to do a quick uh, recap of last week's study of paragraphs uh, three and four, so we're going to look at we were looking at the arrival of the king. so far, we had chapter uh, four, chapter three. So chapter three, we saw that um, there was uh, two genealogies, and they were both found in the gospels of the four gospels. Only Matthew, Luke uh, uh, wrote about the genealogy of Yeshua. we learned that matthew was from joseph's perspective so when the angels came to him they talked to joseph and they were speaking with joseph but in matthew mary wasn't even talked about or talked to but when you look at luke's account it's from Miriam's perspective when the angels came to her and talked to her and we could see what Miriam was thinking and then we looked at why were there two genealogies so the common explanation in uh, mainline churches uh, 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 good churches is they would say that matthew gives us the royal line while luke gives us the real line but what did we learn last week that jesus could not be king if he was anywhere adopted or even biological son of matthew so that's what we learned last week because of jeconiah's curse it says in Jeremiah 22:30, none of his offspring, none of Coniah's offspring, shall um, succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah again. So actually, it's not the royal line that Joseph has, it's actually the cursed line. So it shows that Yeshua did not come to that line. So we also looked at Matthew's genealogy. He would break um, Jewish tradition. He would skip names but he wanted to uh, to have three sets of 14 and the 14 we learned was the numerical value of david dalit which is uh, 14. he mentions the names of women right Rehab, ruth and her is uh who's her Bathsheba. so they had all connected to some type of sexual sin but we know that uh, Ruth did not commit any but it was a product of incest. Then we looked at Luke's genealogy. His followed strict Jewish procedures. It didn't skip any names. He gave us every single name. It doesn't mention any names of women. And then you remember we talked about how does one trace a woman's line in a, man, in a man's uh, genealogy? And it says, by substituting her name with her husband's name. And the second question would be, but then if her husband's name would appear in Matthew's and uh, Luke's genealogy, how could someone tell the difference? So I forgot to put this up last week, but I picked it up on the internet for you guys. And what they did was they used the definite article before the name. We're going to look at that real quick. So in Luke twenty three, in uh, Luke three twenty-three, we saw that Jesus began his ministry when he was about thirty years old, and is being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. So the is a definite article. The So even in verse thirty one, the son of Malaya, the son of Menma Menah, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So what Luke is saying, he's affirming that Yeshua is the Messiah. And this is the right lineage for the Messiah to come through. So in verse 31, you saw the son of uh, Melea, the son of Mena, Matata. So if you look at the Greek, you see the word uh, in verse 31. It looks like T-O-U. To Melea, to Mena, to Matata. To David, Zawid in uh, Greek. That, that's called a definite article. So I would say, like, the Mitchell, the Mike, the David. So everyone's name would have a definite article. And what that definite article is, is a genitive. And what genitive means is you're the possessor of, so you're the son of, so that Malaya possesses the one before, and Mena possesses Malaya. So it's a possessive of uh, ownership of the lineage. But when we go to uh, Luke three twenty-three, if you look down on the bottom there, it says, um, being the son, it says, kuyas, as was supposed of Joseph. Joseph, you know it says the son of Joseph. There was no definite article. And then it goes on with a definite article again, To Heli, or Of Heli. So what this means is, if any Greek or Jewish person would have read the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke, they would have known that it was not Joseph's lineage. It was his wife's lineage. And that's how you can see, when you understand the Greek, you would see that that that's how they would identify that Yeshua was not the son of uh, Joseph. And then we saw the two requirements being fulfilled of of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was to be of Davidic descent. And as we had seen, he was apart from Jeconiah. And then in the next lesson, we're going to see that he's going to fulfill the second requirement. And we also saw the four sonships of the Messiah in both of the uh, genealogies. In Matthew, we saw he was a king and he was a Jew in Luke we saw that he was a man he was human and he also was God himself so this brought out that he was a messianic Jewish God man and we learned all and oh we even learned about in uh, paragraph four uh, we learned about Zacharias and Elisheba and what their names mean right Jehovah remembers And the oath of Jehovah, the oath of God. And we saw that, we're going to see that Jehovah will remember his oath to him. And then we saw when uh, Zechariah went into the temple, to the holy place. He stopped at the veil. He put the incense in there. And then what happened? An angel showed up, right? And whenever an angel would show up, that would mean certain death. So that's why he ended up, everybody, uh, they were troubled when they didn't see him. But the angel, then we saw what the angel did. He told Zacharias, don't fear. I know you thought you were going to die. But your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. And you should call his name Yohanan. So Yohanan means Jehovah is gracious or the grace of Yahweh. But in this verse, it showed that Zacharias had doubted the the angel, and he says, "Whereby shall I know this?" So he was doubting it because my wife is old and stricken in years, just like uh, Sarah was. So because of that, the angel said, "You will be silent; you won't be able to speak until the baby is born." So when he came out from the Uh, tabernacle he couldn't speak to anyone they were asking him, what happened he couldn't speak but all he did was show signs there so tonight we're going to try and get through um, several uh, paragraphs we're going to look at uh, paragraph 5 first the annunciation of the birth of Jesus to Mary so this is now Mary's perspective So verse 26 Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto the city of Galilee and named there a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin, see <laughs> and the virgin's name was Miriam. So Mary is the, you know, the English version, but it came from from the Hebrew, Miriam, down to the Greek, down to the Latin, into English, from Miriam, it came down to Mary. So it was the sixth month. She was pregnant for now six months. And the angels said unto her, Fear not, Mary, but you have found favor with God. So Mary was a very devout believer in the God of Israel. He says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Yeshua. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father earth. Now Gabriel's message was theologically packed and his message to Mary contains uh, five uh, pretty uh, heavy uh, elements. The first one is this incarnation that she's going to have will be a man, a human right there. You'll bring forth a son and you shall call his name Yeshua Jesus so the man's name in Hebrew Yeshua means to save so Yeshua means to save also but when you use it as a noun as a name when you drop the H Yeshua, Yeshua because Yeshua will come and save us so, I remember Arnold was saying, if you go to heaven and you call, you call on Yeshua, you call him Jesus, and he doesn't turn around, and he says, if uh, you call Yeshua, you definitely turn around. But what I think, when we all get to heaven, uh, I think we'll be all speaking Hebrew. Because you remember... Um, he's gonna take all the believers up to heaven and that's the exact thing that in Babylon in uh, the power of Babel they were trying to build this tower to get to heaven to get to God but God had confused the language so at that point there was only one language and that language you look at the Bible it had to have been Hebrew so I think when we go to heaven he will repair that, and everyone will now speak Hebrew in heaven. So we—I don't know uh, there'll be no more uh, too many different languages. Well, maybe we might be multilingual, speak Hebrew and Hawaiian. Hawaiians will speak Hawaiian, like real Hawaiian, not just fake Hawaiian. And all the Samoans will speak Hebrew and Samoan. But I think Hebrew is gonna be the major language next it says his nature he will be great as we look back in scriptures and as we look forward he is great and it says he shall be the son of the most high he will be the son of God the actual son of God and fifthly and lastly the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and this one will fulfill the Davidic covenant. To follow yeah. But he will be a man the man's name will be Yeshua and he will be great, son of God and this one will be the one to fulfill the Davidic covenant but I remember in chapter uh, 4, 3 we found that he was of the Davidic descent and we also noticed he was also apart from the line of Jeconiah now the second requirement was there After applicable to the northern kingdom prophetic sanction or divine appointment so that one he will he was just uh, uh, prophetically sanctioned and divinely appointed so prepare divine appointment so you remember the davidic covenant we saw in um First Chronicles, and when we did the, uh, the eight covenants of the Bible, in First Chronicles, what it talks about for the Davidic company was there were four promises there's to be an eternal house, an eternal throne, eternal kingdom, and an eternal king David. So, those three things the eternal house, the eternal throne, and the eternal kingdom is guaranteed only because of the messianic god man who himself is, is eternal so all the past priests they all passed away only yeshua is forever Yeah, eternal house eternal throne Well, eternal house or dynasty eternal throne eternal kingdom and an eternal descendant so, if you look back in Luke 1 32 and 33, it says, He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Most High God, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his menachim, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. That's pretty awesome how huh? Luke and First Chronicles really builds together perfectly. Again, Son of the Most High God. In verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, uh, come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Wherefore also that which is to be born shall be holy, and shall be called the Son of God. Uh, some people say that in order to uh, for jesus to be born sinless he had to have been uh, not through luke not through uh, joseph but what the bible teaches is that the holy spirit generates the aid out from Miriam and places yeshua within that aid and within that aid Yeshua really humbles himself to put himself in a little cell and now he has to trust his father to keep him at least until being born. So this is an incredible uh, miracle that just occurred which which was done by the Holy Spirit. And here he says, uh, how shall this be seeing I know not of him? So, this was not a question of doubt. It was a question of, okay, how is it going to happen? Because I never had uh, relations with a man before. So, the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Wherefore, also, which is born to be holy shall be holy. So, the Holy Spirit overshadows her, and Jesus remains holy. is to fulfill that uh, prophecy in isaiah 7 14 says therefore the lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name manuel isaiah 7 14. so he goes on he says, and says that behold is it the land of the best like king's woman she also hath conceived a son in her own age this is the sixth month with her that she was called barren. So for six months prior, all, all through her old age, after her life, she was she was a barren woman. in the Jewish culture, whenever you were barren, it said you were a Christian. For no word, verse thirty-seven, from God shall be void of power. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Be unto me according to thy word, and thy angel. So Mary has to trust, put her trust in God for her safety. According to the Mosaic law, even though you were just betrothed, you would still, like you were married. So if you had any relations outside of the marriage, the penalty would have been death for her. So she had to also trust in God. Keep her alive, according to the Mosaic law. Another thing was concerning her relationship to her community surrounding her, because they would end up uh, making her the scourge of the earth in their midst, because they would, they would think that she was uh, prostituting herself. And also her relationship with Joseph. So they would be demeaning and Railing her about how she uh, acted across So, uh, chapter paragraph six the visit of Mary to Elizabeth. So, Mary now knows that her cousin Elizabeth is uh, pregnant. She goes down to visit her. 41 it says that it came to pass when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary the babe leaked in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit so last week we learned that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that John Yohanan would be controlled by the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb here in this verse, we see this action happening. So even in his mother's womb, Yohanan, John the Baptist was already doing his job as a forerunner of the Messiah. Even in the womb, he was pointing to the Messiah, jumping up and pointing. That's the Messiah. And Elizabeth also being filled with the Holy Spirit she gave a divine utterance in verse 42. She says, And she lifted up her voice with a loud cry, and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. <laughs> now, you know, that's a strong Catholic uh, passage, right? I was thinking straight from Elizabeth's words that this woman, Mary, was blessed. Super blessed. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come unto me? So she already knew that Mary was carrying the Messiah. She recognized, because the Holy Spirit had filled her and her son, that Mary is going to be the mother of the Messiah, the long awaited Messiah. Behold, when the voice of thy salutation came into my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And verse 45 goes on and says, Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a fulfillment of the things which have been spoken to her from the Lord. So this verse does the degree of Mary's faith and her faithfulness. Mary here is characterized by belief Believing in the word of the Lord, in contrast to her uh, husband, who is characterized, well, this is Zachariah, and why he was still mute, talking about Elizabeth. Sorry. And from here we go on to the next chapter, a paragraph. And it came to pass when Elizabeth heard this salutation. Seven. Paragraph seven is the song of Mary. So this paragraph shows um, how spiritual this medium uh, Mary Mary is. The song sort of um, is uh, runs parallel to Hannah's song in First Samuel chapter two. So if you read the words that she used, she was referring, referencing various uh, passages of scripture. And that shows how she worshipped God through the scriptures. Like every day people read the Psalms and the Proverbs so that God can, can worship God through the reading of his word. So she worshipped God from the word. And it shows the extent and the depth of her knowledge. So there are two main um, parts to a song. The first part is verses 46 to 50, where she talks about what God does for her, and the second part, takes 1 to fifty-five, where God will do for Israel another person. We just read it right to her and say, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit Also needs a savior. It says, For he hath looked upon the lowest state of his enemy. For behold, henceforth all generations are me blessed. So, how he raises up those in the lowest state at the proper time, the Lord raises them up. For he that is mighty. season He sent him to give help to Israel, certainly him, and make him march. And he speaketh to our fathers, to our Abraham, his seed forever. So we saw what God does for Mary, and what God will do for Israel. And your spirit rejoiced. Is a motif that we're going to see. Whatever's going to happen to the herald, which is John the Baptist, will also happen to the king. So John is no, born. but it's muted, so. the son is the day of the circumcision. The exact day he circumcised when he gave the, the child the day. Studies are natural. The best day is. Came on all that dwelt around about them. And all these sayings were noise abroad throughout all the hill country of today. And all that heard them made them in the heart, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. So Zechariah was holy blessed by his son, the And his father, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he prophesy? He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He hath visited and brought redemption for his people. father gave these two um, prophecies and in verse 69 we see the Davidic covenant in verse 73 we saw the Abrahamic covenant and in verse 77 the new covenant which will be brought about to the shedding of his blood Do you remember it means Yehovah remembers <clears throat> the oath of God so God remembers his oath <clears throat> so verse 72 says to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he spake unto Abraham our father here we go remember Yehovah remembers Zechariah his oath <clears throat> the oath of God so it's, it's cool when you can look at the different languages and you dig deep into the language you can see the words and the names have true meaning and our god remembers his oath he is a faithful god el melek Neeman, a faithful king you talked about john sunrise so John will announce the coming of the Messiah and who's then? to shine upon them that's us guys the Gentiles and our refers to the Jews so John uh, is separated from the Judaism of his day and that's why he, he went off when he was young into the deserts so he wouldn't be uh, influenced the judaism that had now become pharisaic judaism which was developed over the 400 years when jehovah was silent the jews developed this uh, tradition just keep going a couple more just a couple more so now this is the uh, annunciation of the birth of Yeshua to Yosef this is in paragraph um, 9 this is now the birth of Yeshua How much she was on the twilight when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Yosef before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Spirit now well, it's not good she had a baby <laughs> before they got married. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. So he was going to release her of her uh, duties of a wife and getting married because she was a righteous man when he thought on these things behold so he's all already running through his mind he was gonna write her a, a divorce decree which only the men could do in those days but he's thinking about what he's gonna do an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying yourself thou son of David fear not to take unto you marry your wife But that which is conceived in her is of the holy spirit and she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name yeshua for it is he that shall save his people from their sins now all this is come to pass that it might be fulfilled which was spoken to the prophet saying behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is being interpreted God with us. So you see why um, in chapter 13 of Matthew we come you see the unpardonable sin. And what the unpardonable sin was rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit and attributing it to Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. This is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit brought Jesus into human form by placing him into the scene of Mary. So within that scope of the unpardonable sin, this was part of it. And Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took him unto him with his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth a son, and he called his name so they didn't have any relationship until after she gave birth. So she's no longer a virgin. In fact, uh, she had many kids. So he was to fulfill his marriage vow, he is to believe her story. And all is going according to God's prophetic plan through the ages. So Jesus, He shall save His people from their sins. So Mary, she ended up having an, uh, four sons and at least two daughters. So even when Peter became pope, I don't think. Uh, he was still not a virgin, so sorry. Chapter, uh, <laughs> paragraph 10. Now it came to pass in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made with Corinius, with the governor of Syria, and all the way to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out from the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the Beit and the Mishmachah of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who had betrothed to him, being great with child. So now she's like really up high, really showing. Her stomach is really out there. And it came to pass, while they were there, the days were fulfilled. That she should be delivered and she brought forth her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for her at the holiday inn. so this is a timeline of um, where yeshua was born so we know that king herod died um, which i dial in when yeshua was born So King Herod the Great died in four B.C. Clue number one, like anyone, is so the first clue, clue number one, the year that Herod died. He died in 4 BC and the, the gospel accounts are very clear that when Jesus was born Herod was alive and well he was alive and running the country the Jewish side of the country since he died in the year 4 BC obviously Yeshua had to have been born sometime before that so this decree that we just read about Perinius verse 1 and 2, this decree was issued in the year 8 B.C. And Luke points out that Yeshua was born after the decree was issued. So now he's born somewhere between 8 B.C. and 4 B.C. But, But because of that decree, that's why Joseph and Mary, they went to Jerusalem from Nazareth. So the census that Joseph and Mary were required to register was in regarding the land, the land that was uh, there. So there would have been uh, ancestral land that Joseph um, still had an interest in and to which taxes had to be paid. So from the decree of Herod's death, we have uh, Fort book. So he was born somewhere between 8 and 4 BC. So Josephus Josephus tells us that Herod left Jerusalem in the year 5 BC and went to Jericho where he lived the remainder of his life. And he died in Jericho a year after moving there. So in Matthew's account, we read that when the wise men met Herod, he was still in Jerusalem, which means the wise men's visit was before 5 B.C., before Herod left Jerusalem. And the last clue, Matthew also tells us that by the time the wise men met with Herod, Jesus was already a toddler, a young child, between one and two years old. we will to looking at that in uh, another paragraph. So when you put all these clues together, we can deduct that he was born somewhere between 7 and 6 B.C. So in other words, Yeshua was born 7 and 6 B.C. before Christ. Christ was born before Christ ever was. But that's not to do with how the calendars work. That's a pretty deep study too you study the calendars so we just uh miscal- it's not a it's not a contradiction it's just a miscalculation of the calendars so yeshua had to have been born between seven and six bc some others say he was born one bc there's all different kinds of uh, assumptions but if you take just historical records seventy six BC is pretty close. And last but not least, paragraph eleven. His announcement to the shepherds. So the shepherds they were the low the lowest class of them next to the lepers of the shepherds. <laughs> Shepherds in the same country abiding in the field and keeping watch by night over the flock. So, in Israel, if you go there in December, the fields are actually pretty nice because Israel's rainy season is from what is the rainy season? In April, April, and then October to But in December, it's beautiful out there. It says, And the angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were so afraid. They were so afraid, these people weren't allowed into the temple. (laughs) But apparently, the Lord had a plan for these shepherds. And the angel said unto them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy it shall be to all of you. For there is bar to you this day in the city of David, the savior is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign unto you. You shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. So swaddling clothes, if you go to Israel, they have all these little caves, and they have all these burial cloths in the cave. So that if someone was to die way, you could wrap them up in these swaddling clothes and then you could uh, bury them before Shabbat. So these swaddling clothes were actually strips or uh, strips of cloth to bury the dead. And he was lying in a manger this was a fever trough. So uh, the king of heaven, the king of the world, who could have had a mansion, came down and his room was in a, a barn, and his uh, bed was a uh, feeding trough. So he really humbled himself. He humbled himself, uh, putting himself into the smallest cell. And he brought himself even into feeding trough. You have to be humble. So glory to God in the highest. So suddenly there was a angel... With the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And they were saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among many, whom he is well pleased. And it came to pass, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see the thing that is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. So they knew that it was the Lord. And they came with haste and they found mary and joseph and the babe lying in the manger and when they saw it they made known concerning the saying which was spoken to them about this child and all that heard it wondered at the things which were spoken unto them by the shepherds but mary kept all these things all these things, pondering them in her heart but the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, even as it was spoken unto them. So the message of angels to the sh- to the shepherds were, "Do not be afraid." That has seemed to be the theme in this song. Uh, block of passages: "Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid, Zacharias. Don't be afraid." And you know that's what he's telling us too today: "Don't be afraid." Don't be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of the coronavirus. Because you be afraid of the Lord. The one who can uh, kill both your body and your soul. And put them in hell. So do not be afraid, people. Because a Savior has been born. That promised Messiah that came all the way from Genesis 1. is here now. He is here and he is the Messiah. And this was gonna be the sign for the shepherds. This baby was wrapped. It's probably the first baby ever to be wrapped in swaddling clothes. This is probably the first baby ever to be found lying in the manger a brand new baby in the manger but this is where they would uh, house the animals yeah? these low life shepherds God is using them and their uh, profession to find the child so the Lord lifts up the lowly he lifts up the shepherds and then when he's resurrected, he lifts up women because women in that culture were always beat down. But Yeshua, he lifts them up. And Luke 2.7 said, Mary and Joseph could not find any accommodations in the inn. Probably the first time somebody slept in his barn. And so he talked about the swaddling clothes. The same word is used for burial clock Now these caves were also again used for to bury people. So what does it say? Our Messiah who was living the perfect life in heaven with the Father chose to come down and die for us. <laughs> That's just mind me. Our Messiah was born to die and he willingly chose to die for us so we must willingly go out we must learn and go out and share this good news with all the people all right. guess we can uh... all. <laughs> so, if you guys have any questions, you guys can all uh, send it to me or just get unmuted. <laughs> <laughs> you can raise <wave> your hand. <laughs> Ariel, do you have to be muted like that too? Yeah so that the teacher can talk? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Is everybody still muted? Masa, Masa has a question. Hey, Masa.
0: I wrote uh, on a chat.
2: Martha, can you repeat what you type now?
0: Okay. Um, you know, we, uh, last, uh, uh, a few days ago, I think um, we heard Dr. Fruchtenbaum talk. Um, Shira and uh, Mataniel sent uh, a link, and I was listening to him. He mentioned that the... Unpardonable sin is actually only applicable to the Jewish nation. It is, um, the context that is spoken is the rejection of the Messiah by the Israel and the Jewish nation. And that was the unpardonable sin that was, and the judgment that followed is the destruction of Jerusalem. And it is not individual a rejection that is
2: you know, pointing to that's what I, I heard people say that, that is true but what I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit had generated the, the egg and put him in Messiah so even that work of bringing the Messiah forth to Mary that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit would be part of it because they're rejecting Jesus as a demon, right? But he was actually generated and holy. But that's encapsulating in the... It was just for that generation. The uncountable scene was that that generation, they rejected him. They rejected his birth. They rejected all his works that the Holy Spirit did through him. They said he was done not by the Ruach HaModesh, but it was done by Malzabu, the prince of demons. That is true, but it was only for that time the Bible said for that generation, that wicked and evil generation, they looked for a sign, but no sign was given them except the sign of Jonah. Any other question? Or statements?
1: <laughs> I have a comment. Okay. Um, I don't know. During, like, Easter and Passover, uh, Resurrection Sunday, the Lord, we were watching this, um, like a theater broadcaster. What's it called? Sight and sound. Sight and sound theater. Yeah. They're out of like Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but they do a beautiful job. Um, baseball gospel stories. But anyways, um, it just dawned on me that Joseph and you know, and Mary, you know, during when he was born. You know they wrapped him in the swaddling cloth and during you know when jesus ended up yeshua ended up dying on the cross joseph of arimathea was there and he had did he have swaddling cloth for mary i know he had the tomb for her i'm not sure if he had the swaddling cloth but i just thought it was so beautiful because the lord just put on my heart that you know her husband was there at the birth of jesus you know watch this keep... miracle happen wasn't able to be there for his death but god still like showed mary that you know he loved her and, you know he just by bringing this man named joseph
2: uh, the end of at the, the
1: story. end am i making any sense sorry <laughs>
2: there was a joseph the i mean joseph a husband yeah. of Mary at the beginning yeah. to witness the birth of Messiah, but then there is a different Joseph at the yeah. at the end of Mary. Yeah, this, you're saying like, you know, for like poetic uh, yeah meeting that story together. Yeah. Poetic irony. Yeah. Yeah that's not like <clears throat> I just
1: thought it was beautiful, just I don't know, it choked me up, like, you know, just imagining being Mary, you know, and watching her son, you know, yeah. on the cross, and yet, then she sees this man who comes to her and says, you know, I have this place where I can take your son, you know, and bury him, and, you know, and I imagine at that moment, you know, Mary's just like, God is here, he sees me, and, you know, again, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: is my little too.
2: <laughs> oh, that, hey, that's, that could be heart-wrenching right there. Tear-jerker.
1: I was crying, now, and the Lord
2: took it out. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I almost
0: couldn't be the last passage of the last passage. You know, so, so. Hey, <laughs> maybe. maybe have I have another question. <laughs> okay. Um, The question I have is, um. I heard that um, the reason that uh, Ma- Mary was given to John at the cross was because she did not have any
2: biological children. Last week we looked at paragraph uh, twenty. So Jesus comes back from the temptation and then John sees him passing by. With two of his disciples standing there and he looked in verse 26 and he said that Jesus walked by and said a-seha Elohim. he says behold the Lamb of God earlier he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and what he meant by that was previously all the sacrifices were done year in and year out every year you had to re-sacrifice for your sins But this particular Passover lamb will be the one who would take away the sins and you wouldn't have to go to sacrifice the animals anymore. So from that point on, no more sacrifices. That's why today, this sacrifice is good enough if you just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died and buried and rose again. If you pray that prayer, he freely will accept you, forgive you, and receive you as his own. So he's back from the temptation, and then verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him, and they followed him. So they followed him around. And once John pointed that he was the Messiah, these two disciples, which we find out would be John and Andrew, would follow him. At some point, it says in 38, Jesus Yeshua he turned around and saw them following him, said, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you live? And he said to them, "Come and see." So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was, for it was, for it was the tenth hour. So what this is in Jewish, um, if you was a Jewish man wanted to learn about scriptures, about Torah, you would follow a rabbi around. You don't want too close. But he'd get irritated, or you wouldn't want to be too far. where he wouldn't notice you. But you'd be just at a certain uh, length of it. And at some point, it could be hours, it could be days, it could be weeks. And he would turn around and ask, what are you looking for? And then they would say, where are you staying? And he would reply either, get out of here. I don't know which means he rejected you. Or he would say, come. And follow me so this is what happened here so we saw this was we, we went through this last week and this is a Jewish style where they would follow this rabbi around and and until he turns around and says what do you want he could either reject him or accept him. but he had accepted them at this point and this was about four o'clock in the afternoon so this had to only have been hours that they had been following Yeshua could have been immediately but it was at least hours. So in verses 40 to 44, we saw last week this amazing scripture, but if you don't know the Jewish backdrop, it's sort of hard to understand. So from verse 40 to 42, it says that Andrew, Andrew and John, they heard Jesus speak. And so Andrew had brought Simon Peter's brother. verse 41 says, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, He told Simon, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And verse 42 goes on and said that, He brought him to Yeshua, and Yeshua looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Yohanan. You shall be called Kephas, which means Petros. So he has three different names here. His Hebrew name, before it was Simon. But Yeshua had changed his name to Kepha, which is an Aramaic name. And the Greek name is Petros, Peter, which means a little pebble, a little stone in the river. This would be the setup for later on in Caesarea Philippi, when Yeshua would say that upon this rock will my church be built. And it wouldn't be on Peter himself, but we would be on Peter's confession. And then it says in verse 43, On the next day, so so far, four days have passed, and Jesus had decided to go to Galilee. But prior to going to Galilee, he saw Philip, and Philip said to him, He told Philip, Follow me. So now he has Philip from Bethesda, and he has Andrew. And Peter and John as his first four disciples. Now, this is a, I just wanted to reiterate what we did last year because if you don't know the Jewish perspective, it's a little harder to understand what went on here. So, a little bit of Jewish background. In those days, again, it was impossible for everyone to own a copy of the Torah or scriptures. Even today, it's hard because it's like $10,000 for one of those Torah scrolls. So what they would do is go to the synagogue. And as the person read the, 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 the Torah, the Torah portion, they would have to memorize it. And they would have to uh, meditate on it and memorize it. So they would meditate on that passage that they had just memorized. They had to memorize it over and over until the next uh, service. And what the rabbis taught was the best place to receive from the Lord and to meditate was under the fig tree. So with these um, backgrounds um, in mind, this is what occurred at this place. In verse 45, it says that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moshe in the Torah and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Cool. But Nathaniel being kind of skeptical maybe going grouchy guy I'm not sure he said can anything good come out of Nazareth as they say can anything good come out of YNI or the mm-hmm. chop zone in Seattle or whatever <laughs> can anything good come out of that <laughs> Philip, Philip didn't pay no mind to him and what he said was come and see so verse 47 Jesus now is going to greet um, Nathanael. And how does he greet him? He greets him in a particular way. Nathanael said to him, so Jesus in verse 47 we saw and says, "Nathanael coming toward him." And Jesus said to him, "Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile." So an Israelite is the son of Israel. And then verse 47 goes on. uh, Verse 48 says, Nathanael saw him. And he's like, Bro, how you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So they just talked to each other twice, okay? And what does the conclusion, what does Nathanael's conclusion come up to be? (laughs) Nathanael answered him and said, Rabboni, you are the son of God You are the king of Israel. Well, if I told you guys I saw you guys under the tree, would you guys have that same reaction towards me? I doubt it, but what was going on in the background? So when Yeshua said, this Israelite with no guile, Yeshua was pointing back to Genesis 27, where Jacob had committed his first act of guile, in deceiving his dad and taking the birthright, this was the only time they committed guile. But this guy was also pro- provoked by his mom, right? His mom was provoking him to do this. So Yeshua knew when he was saying, he's saying that Israelite in the past that you're meditating on committed an act of guile, but you, Nathaniel, you did not commit any act of guile up till now. So Yeshua knew that he was meditating on Genesis 27, 32 to 35. So his response is pretty extreme, right? To say, ah, you're the God, you're the King of Israel. So according to the rabbinic writings, again, typical for a rabbinic scholar to study and meditate on Torah outside under the fig tree. That was, I guess they say, the best place to receive the mana from the Lord to memorize the scriptures. And again, remember, too expensive to own the scriptures? They had to memorize it every day. So here is what happened. Nathaniel had been most likely meditating on that scripture, under that fig tree. And specifically, the story about Jacob, the first one who was named Israel, then Jacob with an act of guile had been forced to flee from his home by his father Isaac because his brother was ready to kill him. So in verse 50, Jesus tells Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And I said to, and he said to him, Truly I said to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. For so Yeshua is telling Nathaniel that he will see these angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And where did we see that? We see that in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, while Jake was on the run, he pulled up a rock. a pillow. It wasn't my pillow because my pillow is comfortable and everybody (laughs) can sleep. It's all over the commercials. It was a rock. It was a stone that he pulled up. And when he slept, this is what he saw. He saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon that stairwell. So Nathanael came to realize that Yeshua knew the exact scriptures that Nathanael was meditating upon. So M- Nathanael knew that Yeshua could read his mind. And so he concluded that Yeshua was the Messiah and he was the Son of God. And we understand and we get the clue that he was studying scripture. I wrote, memorizing it under the tree, and Yeshua described every aspect of his meditation. Wouldn't that be nuts? we would be meditating on a passage one day. In the beginning was the Word. Word with God, and you open your eyes, and Jesus is right there. That's not going to happen. He's going to come one day again, though, to judge the earth. But until then, we can find him in Scripture. Okay. So this paragraph, paragraph twenty-nine, is called the belief to the first miracle of Yeshua. Now, we find that John loves the number seven. There's seven signs that he writes about. There's seven discourses that he does. And there are seven I am statements in his writings. So today, we're going to look at the first of his seven signs, the changing of water into wine. So in paragraph... um, 29 verse 1 it says on the third day (laughs) so on this third day a full week would have transpired in Yeshua's life so this, this, this is the occasion when seven consecutive days would have transpired in the life of Yeshua the first day began John the Baptist was interrogated by the Pharisees, the second day was when John identified the Messiah, and the third day and the fourth day were where the first five disciples were called out to him. And now here in uh, paragraph 29, we we include days 5, 6, and 7. So it says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. So from Bethany up to Cana is a three-day journey. So they, Yeshua and his five disciples, take their trek up to Cana. So it says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. And who was there, it says, and the mother of Yeshua was there. And then verse 2 says, Jesus was invited to that party, to that wedding, with his disciples. So we see that Jesus was partying at the time. (laughs) He wasn't a party animal, he just was going to this wedding party. Which actually he had ordained in the beginning, in Genesis. The weddings was ordained by God. And what happens in verse 3? It says, When the wine ran out, his the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So Jesus' mother, Miriam, comes to him, points out to him, Son, we've ran out of wine. In the Jewish eyes, this is a disaster for wedding feast, because wine is the main thing. I think even for the Greek, the Greek weddings, wine is You need that and now these um these wedding feasts would last for seven days so at a Jewish wedding feast I mean that's a bummer right so he goes on and she asks his son the worst thing has happened we've run out of wine what is the worst thing that could happen at a Hawaiian luau? you run out of food forget the wine you run out of food. That's shame, man. I mean that's heartbreaking. <laughs> Whatever you do, that when Hawaiian do all, you make a don't run out of food, man. I always be take home plates. I always gotta do that. So at the wedding feast, the best wines would be served first. And then as everybody gets a little tipsy, they don't care what kind of wine they drink after. And they bring out the, the lesser wine. <laughs> so Jesus responds to his mother. And Jesus said there, Woman, what does this have to do? What does this have to do with me? What Jesus is showing here that he is no longer under his mom's authority. So he addresses her. that problem at the party, not from a child-parent relation but on the base, which is based on obedience, which our kids, until they come 18, they have to, the Bible says obey your parents but now they have a different relationship. It's an adult-child parent relationship where you do things for your parents to respect them and to honor them. So he is honoring his mother's um, askings. And he goes on and says, Mine hour is not yet come. When Yeshua always says this throughout scriptures, it normally refers to his death. But in this context only, it refers to the beginning of his public ministry. He wasn't to go public here in little old He was to go public down in Jerusalem in the midst of all the the doctors of the law. So verse 5, what does mom say? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, growing up with Jesus as your son, I mean, he never sinned, right? <laughs> so he must have done some incredible things. But he never did sin to sin. Listen to my son. He'll take care of it. So verse 6, he says, now there are six stone water jars there, for the jewish rites of purification so if you're unclean you would uh, with your hands for the hand washing you have to wash your hands and this is what the water was for and he says each holding 20 to 30 gallons so pretty big pots and jesus had said to his servants in verse 7 fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim verse 8 and they said to him now draw some out and take it to the master or the MC of the feast. So they took it. They scooped up, scooped out a, a spoon or a cup. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. And it says in parentheses, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, like, Yo, bridegroom, come <laughs> over here. In verse thirty he says, said, and said to him. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. So these water pots were filled with water, and what happened was an amazing little miracle They're actually altering the molecular com- composition of the water and changing it into grape juice. No, it wasn't grape juice. It was 100% wine. The best wine this world has ever tasted, probably. Probably in the kingdom, when we go to see God in heaven and we enter into the messianic kingdom, he says that we can drink wine with him because that's where he will partake again. The best wine ever. Now, regarding the passage, it says, And wine that makes glad the heart of man. So when you drink wine, and you find joy and happiness and relaxation, nobody ever had that from drinking grape juice, yeah? (laughs) But wine. The wine you have that. So in verse 11, it states that this is, it says right there, the first of his signs. This is the first sign that he did. In public. You remember he had that other. He was tempted to change the stones into bread. But he resisted that. So there are many stories. In the Apocrypha. In the New Testament. That claim that Yeshua did. Other miracles prior to this. This water is still water. <laughs> Go back, try again. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the Apocrypha, they claim that Yeshua did other miracles. But according to this, this is the first of his miracles. What were the results, Well, what were the reasons for this first miracle? The first reason was, He manifested His glory. He had the power to create, and He was showing His disciples, I have this ability. And two, it says His disciples believed in Him, so they had confirmation that not only He could do the miracles, but He did it in front of them for their benefit. There are two words for wine, a Hebrew and a Greek word. In Hebrew, it's pretty close, it's yain. In Greek, it's oinos. And they both mean wine, fermented wine. So wine plays a role in the beginning of Yeshua's ministry and at the end of his ministry. In Matthew, he said, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now or until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So for now, as people come to know Jesus, they accept him as Lord and Savior. The next thing that we as Christians wait for is the rapture so when we believe on Jesus and as you look at the Feast of Israel <coughs> the Feast of Trumpets will call up the Bride of Christ to heaven then all hell will break loose on earth kind of like in Seattle <coughs> but we will be getting married to the Lord in heaven After the great tribulation, when all Israel shall be saved, the brand new messianic kingdom will be set up on earth. And what will begin the messianic kingdom is a seven-day feast. And we all, as believers, New and Old Testament, will partake in this feast. And that is the only time when Yeshua will drink wine again. (coughs) Now this particular passage when it is studied a side issue becomes the main issue so they usually say did Jesus transform the water into actual wine actual fermented alcoholic wine or into grape juice non-alcoholic wine so the Hebrew word for grape juice is mitz anavim mitz-anavim is mitz is juice and anavim is grape, grape juice. In Greek is gleukos and mustos, And both of these words mean grape juice. But if you look at the passage, in the Greek is oinos, which is fermented alcohol content wine. So throughout the passage, the Greek word translated wine is used over and over. But if you look in um, uh, Strong's Concordance, it expands that meaning to aged or vintage wine. So it was wine that was really had alcoholic alcohol content. And this actually supports the exclamation of the overseer or the, the MC saying, Man, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Uh, God made it himself, so I'm sure it's going to be the best one. So the Greek word for wine that Jesus created was oinos, the same word for the wine of the wedding feast that ran out, the same wine was oinos. The Greek word for that same type of wine that Jesus has created is also found in Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18, what does it say? do not get drunk on wine yeah do not get drunk on wine but be filled with the holy spirit what does that mean be moved by the spirit be controlled by the holy spirit rather than being controlled by this these other intoxicating spirits different spirits So he's saying be followed, be a follower of the spirit and filled with the spirit rather than wine. So obviously getting drunk from drinking wine requires alcohol. I mean, I never saw anyone get arrested for a DUI from drinking Welch's grape juice. So you had to have some other type of alcoholic content. So everything from the context of the wedding feast to the usage of Oinos in first century Greek, the Greek literature, the New Testament, even outside the New Testament, argues for the wine that Jesus created to be a high quality, extraordinary wine containing alcohol. Now I'm not promoting anything. I'm just saying what the text says. There is simply no solid historical, cultural, exegetical contextual or lexical reason to understand it to have been grape juice but it's straight wine <laughs> so those now there are people legalists who oppose the drinking of wine which is fine they can do that they have the no right to do that so in any quantity, you cannot drink any wine and they argue that Jesus would have turned the water would not have turned this water into wine Because he will be promoting the consumption of a substance that is tainted by sin. And that's what they believe. That's what legalism does. So in this understanding, alcohol itself is inherently sinful. And consumption of alcohol in any quantity is sin. But if you look at the Bible, that's basically, that's not the biblical understanding of what it is. So here are some scriptures that discuss alcohol in positive terms. (laughs) Ecclesiastes says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Not grouchy. Don't be grouchy drinking your wine. Again, Psalm says, um, wine that makes glad the heart of men. Amos 9.14 says, it discusses drinking wine from your own vineyard. That's a sign of God's blessing. So when you work the land, you also reap what the land is and Isaiah 55 one encourages yes come buy wine and milk so it encourages to receive wine. in fact in first Timothy first Timothy 5 23 says you know drink some water but also take some wine for your stomach for medicinal purposes for your infirmities actually the, the passage says so from these and other scriptures, it is clear that alcohol itself is not sinful. Yeah? You can agree to that. Rather, it is the abuse of alcohol and drunkenness and our addiction that is sinful. But I know what, what churches do. They want you to err, not err on this on that side. They just want you to abstain from it and you can be good and not fall into temptation or sin. So what logically would not have been a sin for Jesus to create a drink that contained alcohol okay It's, it's not a sin. Another thing is related argument is that by creating alcoholic wine again Jesus would be promoting drunkenness. So, you remember when Jesus um, fed the 5,000 and he got plenty of bread and fishes and loaves and fishes and he made so much extra. He went far beyond what the people needed. Was this, was he promoting gluttony? No, he wasn't. He just wanted to feed the people. Like, I want to feed them and hey, he's God. He can create, he always gives. Uh, an extra portion, a measured portion. So is he promoting gluttony? Of course not. So to abstain from drinking wine because it causes you sin would be like saying don't eat food because you have the potential or even the propensity to sin and commit the sin of gluttony. So either way you look at it, if you're going abstain from wine, you to abstain from everything. So no eat and no drinking. And that's what legalism does. It it stops you from doing all these things. The Bible never teaches abstaining, but it does teach moderation. Yeah, moderation in everything. <laughs> I gotta be moderate on my eating too. You know what I mean? I don't like I don't have a problem with you know drinking too. I, mean, I don't enjoy it, but probably in the kingdom, I probably will enjoy the wine made by Yeshua. So, creating a substance that can be abused does not make one responsible when another person foolishly chooses to abuse it. So, Yeshua creating this wine was in no sense encouraging drunkenness. So, again, there's no biblical reason to understand John 2. As anything other than Jesus performing an amazing miracle by turning water into wine. So, is drunkenness sinful? Of course, it is. Because now you're under a different um, spirit. And that's what they're called, right? Spirits. Absolutely is. Is addiction sinful? Of course. So, with Jesus, again, turning water into alcoholic wine in any way violate nice standard regarding the consumption of alcohol? Absolutely not. So I'm not promoting drunkenness or gluttony. You know what I'm promoting? Freedom in Yeshua. He had given us this precious thing called free will. And that's the only way we can love Him is with our free will. We give up our free will to choose His. So where there is freedom to drink, there is also freedom not to drink. There is freedom to be moderate, but people take extra and they go beyond and become drunk. So if you cannot do it in moderation, then it turns to sin. And what happens for us believers, we become a bad witness for the cause of Yeshua. So I really haven't seen many Christians with a drinking problem, which led many to the Lord. So if if I had a drinking problem, I probably wouldn't go out and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, about His kingdom, about His kingdom to come, and how we will never be able to sin. we have brand new bodies. I wouldn't, that would be the furthest thing from my mind. So what happens when you become drunk? Your witness becomes compromised. So believers have the freedom. But if you think you will violate those freedoms that God has given us, don't do it. So what does it teach us? As we continue to invite people to receive Yeshua, which says in Revelations 99, He says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So they too can pass from death unto life and to partake of the most exquisite wine ever created. So right now in our human condition without Jesus, it says, we're dead to sin already. It says, we're children of hell. Hell and the lake of fire was created for Satan and all those who do not receive Christ as their Savior. So what we must do is share the good news of Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when you give us your word and you allow us to read it and you allow us to meditate on it and as the Holy Spirit teaches us and convicts us of these areas we thank you that you love us enough to correct us in certain areas you love us enough even to encourage us Lord the righteous man may fall 70 times but he won't get up and you are there picking us up every single time So we thank you that with your Holy Spirit living within us, you allow us to have that ability to sin less and less. Thank you for loving us and thank you for giving us your all. And I pray that in return, Lord, our witness, our lives, our all will be given over to you. We love You, we praise You, Lord, and we honor You in all things that we do. In Yeshua's name, and in Yeshua's authority, we pray, and we all say, Amen. So, last week, we looked at paragraph uh, 20. So, Jesus comes back from the temptation, and then John sees Him passing by, with two of His disciples standing there, and He looked in verse 36 and he said that Jesus walked by and said "Hineh, Haseha Elohim he says behold the Lamb of God earlier he said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and what he meant by that was previously all the sacrifices were done year in and year out every year you had to re-sacrifice for your sins but this particular Passover Lamb will be the one who would take away the sins and you wouldn't have to go to sacrifice the animals anymore. So from that point on, no more sacrifices. That's why today, his sacrifice is good enough if you just say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you died and buried and rose again. If you pray that prayer, he freely will accept you, forgive you, and receive you as his own. So he's back from the temptation, and then verse thirty-seven says, the two disciples heard him, and they followed him. So they followed him around. And once John pointed that he was the Messiah, these two disciples, which we find out would be John and Andrew, would follow him. At some point, it says in thirty-eight, Jesus Yeshua, he turned around and saw them following him, said, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you live? And he said to them, Come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was for it was for it was the tenth hour. So what this is in Jewish um, if you was a Jewish man wanted to learn about scriptures, about Torah, you would follow a rabbi around. You don't want too close. But he'd get irritated, or you wouldn't want to be too far, where he wouldn't notice you. But you'd be just at a certain uh, length of width, And at some point, it could be hours, it could be days, it could be weeks. And he would turn around and ask, what are you looking for? And then they would say, where are you staying? And he would reply either, get out of here. I don't know which means he rejected you. Or he would say, come and follow me. So this is what happened here. So we saw this was we, we went through this last week and this is a Jewish style where they would follow this rabbi around and, and until he turns around and says what do you want? He could either reject it or accept it but he had accepted him at this point and this was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon so this had to only have been hours that they had been following Yeshua. Could have been immediately but it was at least hours. So in in verses 40 to 44, we saw last week this amazing scripture, but if you don't know the Jewish backdrop, it's sort of hard to understand. So from verse 40 to 42, it says that Andrew, Andrew and John, they heard Jesus speak, and so Andrew had brought Simon Peter's brother, verse 41 says, He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, He told Simon, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And verse 42 goes on and said that, He brought him to Yeshua, and Yeshua looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of Yohanan. You shall be called Kephas, which means Petros. So he has three different names here. His Hebrew name, before it was Simon. But Yeshua had changed his name to Kepha, which is an Aramaic name. And the Greek name is Petros, Peter, which means a little pebble, a little stone in the river. This would be the setup for later on in Caesarea Philippi. When Yeshua would say that upon this rock will my church be built. And it wouldn't be on Peter himself, but we would be on Peter's confession. And then it says in verse 43, On the next day, so so far, four days have passed, and Jesus had decided to go to Galilee. But prior to going to Galilee, he saw Philip, and Philip said to him, He told Philip, Follow me. So now he has Philip from Bethesda, and he has Andrew. And Peter and John as his first four disciples. Now, this is a, I just wanted to reiterate what we did last year because if you don't know the Jewish perspective, it's a little harder to understand what went on here. So, a little bit of Jewish background. In those days, again, it was impossible for everyone to own a copy of the Torah or scriptures. Even today, it's hard because it's like $10,000 for one of those Torah scrolls. So what they would do is go to the synagogue. And as the person read the, 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 the Torah, the Torah portion, they would have to memorize it. And they would have to be, uh, meditate on it and memorize it. So they would meditate on that passage that they had just memorized. They had to memorize it over and over until the next uh, service. And what the rabbis taught was the best place to receive from the Lord and to meditate was under the fig tree. So with these um, backgrounds um, in mind, this is what occurred at this place. In verse 45, it says that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moshe in the Torah and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Oh, but Nathaniel being kind of skeptical, maybe going grouchy guy, I'm not sure. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? As they say, can anything good come out of Waianae or the mm-hmm. chop Zone in <laughs> Seattle or whatever? Can anything good come out of that? <laughs> Philip, Philip didn't pay no mind to him. And what he said was, come and see. So verse 47, Jesus now is going to greet um, Nathanael. And how does he greet him? He greets him in a particular way. Nathanael said to him, well, Jesus in verse 47 saw and says, Nathanael coming toward him. And Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. So an Israelite is the son of Israel. And then verse 47 goes on. uh, Verse 48 says, Nathanael saw him. And he's like, Bro, how you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So they just talked to each other twice, okay? And what does the conclusion, what does Nathanael's conclusion come up to be? (laughs) Nathanael answered him and said, Rabboni, you are the son of God You are the king of Israel. Well, if I told you guys I saw you guys under the tree, would you guys have that same reaction towards me? I doubt it, but what was going on in the background? So when Yeshua said, this Israelite with no guile, Yeshua was pointing back to Genesis 27, where Jacob had committed his first act of guile, in deceiving his dad and taking the birthright. This was the only time they committed guile. But this guile was also provoked by his mom, right? His mom was provoking him to do this. So Yeshua knew what he was saying. He's saying, that Israelite in the past that you're meditating on, committed an act of guile. But you, Nathaniel, you did not commit any act of guile up till now. So Yeshua knew that he was meditating on Genesis 27, 32 to 35. So his response is pretty extreme, right? To say, ah, you're the God, you're the King of Israel. So according to the rabbinic writings, again, typical for a rabbinic scholar to study and meditate on Torah outside under the fig tree. That was, I guess they say, the best place to receive the manna from the Lord to memorize the scriptures. And again, remember, too expensive to own the scriptures? They had to memorize it every day. So here is what happened. Nathaniel had been most likely meditating on that scripture, under that fig tree, and specifically the story about Jacob, the first one who was named Israel, And Jacob, with an act of guile, had been forced to flee from his home by his father Isaac because his brother was ready to kill him. So in verse 50, Jesus tells Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And I said to, and he said to him, Truly I said to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. For so Yeshua is telling Nathaniel that he will see these angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man and where did we see that? We see that in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28 while Jake was on the run he pulled up a rock for a pillow. It wasn't my pillow because my pillow He's comfortable and everybody can sleep. It's all over the commercials. It was a rock. It was a stone that he pulled up. And when he slept, this is what he saw. He saw the angels of God ascending and descending upon that stairwell. So Nathaniel came to realize that Yeshua knew the exact scriptures that Nathanael was meditating upon. So Nathanael knew that Yeshua could read his mind. And so he concluded that Yeshua was the Messiah and He was the Son of God. And we understand, and we get the clue that He was studying Scripture. I wrote, memorizing it under the tree, and Yeshua described every aspect of His meditation. Wouldn't that be nuts? We'd be meditating on us passage one day. In the beginning was the Word, the Word of with God, and you open your eyes, and Jesus is right there. That's not going to happen. He's going to come one day again though, to judge the earth. But until then, we can find him in scripture. Okay. So this paragraph, paragraph 29, is called the belief through the first miracle of Yeshua. Now we find that John loves the number seven. There's seven signs that he writes about. There's seven discourses that he does, and there are seven I am statements in his writings. So today we're going to look at the first of his seven signs, the changing of water into wine. So in paragraph um, 29, verse 1, it says... on the third day. <laughs> so on this third day, a full week would have transpired in Yeshua's life. So this, this, this is the occasion when seven consecutive days would have transpired in the life of Yeshua. The first day began when John the Baptist was interrogated by the Pharisees the second day was when John identified the Messiah, and the third day and the fourth day were where the first five disciples were called out to him. And now here in uh, paragraph 29, we, we include days 5, 6, and 7. So it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan. So from Bethany up to Cana is a three-day journey. So they Yeshua and his five disciples take their trek up to Cana. So it says on the third day there was a wedding in Cana. And who was there? It says, and the mother of Yeshua was there. And then verse 2 says, Jesus was invited to that party, to that wedding, with his disciples. So we see that Jesus was partying at the time. (laughs) He wasn't a party animal, he just was going to this wedding party. Which actually he had ordained in the beginning, in Genesis. The weddings was ordained by God. And what happens in verse 3? It says, when the wine ran out, his, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Jesus' mother, Miriam comes to him, points out to him, son, we've ran out of wine. In the Jewish eyes, this is a disaster for wedding feasts because wine is the main thing. I think even for the Greek, the Greek weddings, wine is, you need that. And now these, um, these wedding feasts would last for seven days. So at a Jewish wedding feast, I mean, that's a bummer, right? So he goes out and she asks his son, The worst thing has happened. We've run out of wine. What is the worst thing that could happen at a Hawaiian rua? You, you run out of food. Forget the wine. You run out of food. That's shame, man. I mean... That's heartbreak <laughs> <laughs> of party. Whatever you do, it, when Hawaiian do are you make a don't run out of food, man. I always be take home plates. I always gotta do that. So at the wedding feast, the best wines would be served first. And then as everybody gets a little tipsy, they don't care what kind of wine they drink after. And they bring out the the lesser wine. so Jesus responds to his mother and Jesus said there what does this have to do what does this have to do with me what Jesus is showing here that he is no longer under his mom's authority so he addresses her and that problem at the party not from a child parent relation but on the basis which is based on obedience, which our kids, until they come 18, they have to, the Bible says, obey your parents. But now they have a different relationship. It's an adult-child-parent relationship where you do things for your parents to respect them and to honor them. So he is honoring his mother's um, askings. And he goes on and says, Mine hour is not yet come. When Yeshua always says this throughout scriptures, it normally refers to his death. But in this context only, it refers to the beginning of his public ministry. He wasn't to go public here in little old Cana. He's supposed to go public down in Jerusalem in the midst of all the, the doctors of the law. So verse 5, what does mom say? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, growing up with Jesus as your son, I mean, he never sinned, right? So he must have done some incredible things. But he never did sin, to he listen to my son, he'll take care of it. So verse 6, he says, now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So if you're unclean, you would uh with your hands for the hand washing, you have to wash your hands. And this is what the water was for. And he says, each holding twenty to thirty gallons, so pretty big pots. And Jesus had said to his servants in verse seven, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8, and they said to him, Now draw some out and take it to the master or the empty of the feast. So they took it. Scooped, about, scooped out a uh, spoon or a cup, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. And it says in parentheses, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Yo, bridegroom, <laughs> come over here. In verse ten, he says, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely. Then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. So these water pots were filled with water. And what happened was an amazing little miracle. They're actually altering the molecular composition of the water and changing it into grape juice. No, it wasn't grape juice, it was 100% wine the best wine this world has ever tasted probably. Probably in the kingdom, when we go to see God in heaven and we enter into the messianic kingdom, he says that we can drink wine with him because that's where he will partake again. The best wine ever. Now regarding the passage, he says, and wine that makes glad the heart of man. So when you drink wine, and you find joy, and happiness, and relaxation, nobody ever had that from drinking grape juice, yeah? But wine, the wine you have that. So in verse 11, it states that this is, it says right there, the first of his signs. The first sign that he did in public. You remember, he had that other, he was tempted to change the stones into bread, but he resisted that. <coughs> so, there are many stories in the Apocrypha, in the New Testament, that claim that Yeshua did other miracles prior to this. <laughs> This water is still water. (laughs) Go back. Try (laughs) again. So in the Apocrypha, they claim that Yeshua did other miracles. But according to this, this is the first of His miracles. What were the results? Well, what were the reasons for this first miracle? The first reason was manifested his glory he had the power to create and he was showing his disciples i have this ability and two (coughs) it says his disciples believed in him so they had confirmation that not only he could do the miracles but he did it in front of them for their benefit There are two words for wine, a Hebrew and a Greek word. In Hebrew, it's pretty close; it's "yain." In Greek, it's "oinos," and they both mean wine, fermented wine. (coughs) So, wine plays a role in the beginning of Yeshua's ministry and at the end of his ministry. In Matthew he said but I say to you I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now or until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom so for now as people come to know Jesus they accept him as Lord and Savior the next thing that we as Christians wait for is the rapture so when we believe on Jesus and as you look at the Feast of Israel (coughs) The Feast of Trumpets will call up the Bride of Christ to heaven. Then all hell will break loose on earth, kind of like in Seattle. <laughs> <coughs> but we will be getting married to the Lord in heaven. After the great tribulation, when all Israel shall be saved, the brand new messianic kingdom will be set up on earth. And what will begin the messianic kingdom is a seven-day feast. And we all as believers, New and Old Testament, will partake in this feast. And that is the only time when Yeshua will drink wine again. Now this particular passage, when it is studied, a side issue becomes the main issue. So they usually say, did Jesus transform the water into actual wine? Actual fermented alcoholic wine or into grape juice, non-alcoholic wine. So the Hebrew word for grape juice is mitz anavim. Mitz anavim is mitz is juice, and anavim is grape, grape juice. In Greek, is gleukos and mustos. And both of these words mean grape juice. But if you look at the passage in the Greek is oinos, which is fermented alcohol content wine. So throughout the passage, the Greek word fermented wine is used over and over. If you look in um, uh, Strong's Concordance, it expands that meaning to aged, or vintage wine. So it was wine that was really had alcoholic alcohol content, and this actually supports the exclamation of the overseer or the the MC saying, "Man, this is the best wine I've ever tasted." Uh, God made it himself, so I'm sure it's going to be the best one. So the Greek word for wine that Jesus created was oinos. The same word for the wine of the wedding feast that ran out, the same wine, was oinos. The Greek word for that same type of wine that Jesus has created is also found in Ephesians 5.18. (coughs) Ephesians 5.18, what does it say? Do not get drunk on wine. Do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Be moved by the Spirit, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, rather than being controlled by this, these other intoxicating spirits, different spirits. So he's saying, be, followed, be a follower of the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, rather than wine so obviously getting drunk from drinking wine requires alcohol I mean I never saw anyone get arrested for a DUI from drinking Welch's grape juice so you had to have some other type of alcoholic content so everything from the context of the wedding feast to the usage of oinos in first century greek Greek literature, the New Testament, even outside the New Testament, argues for the wine that Jesus created to be a high-quality, extraordinary wine containing alcohol. I'm not promoting anything. I'm just saying what the text says. There is simply no solid historical, cultural, exegetical, contextual, or lexical reason to understand it to have been grape juice but this Drink wine. <laughs> so those now there are people legalists who oppose the drinking of wine, which is fine. They can do that. They have the right to do that. So in any quantity, you cannot drink any wine. And they argue that Jesus would have turned the water, would not have turned this water into wine. Because he would be promoting the consumption of a substance. That is tainted by sin and that's what they believe that's what legalism does so in this understanding alcohol itself is inherently sinful and consumption of alcohol in any quantity is sin but if you look at the bible that's basically that's not the biblical understanding of what it is so here are some scriptures that discuss alcohol in positive terms <laughs> Ecclesiastes says, "Drink your wine with a merry heart. Not grouchy. Don't be grouchy drinking your wine." Again, Psalm says, um, "Wine that makes glad the heart of men." Amos 9:14 says it discusses drinking wine from your own vineyard as a sign of God's blessing. So when you work the land, you also reap what the land gives. And Isaiah 55:1 encourages. Yes, come buy wine and milk. So it encourages to receive wine. In fact in First Timothy, First Timothy five twenty-three says, you know, drink some water, but also take some wine for your stomach, for medicinal purposes, for your infirmities, actually the, the passage says. So from these and other scriptures, it is clear that alcohol itself is not sinful. You can agree to that. Rather, it is the abuse of alcohol and drunkenness and our addiction that is sinful. But I know what what churches do. They want you to err, not err on on that side. They just want you to abstain from it and you can be good and not fall into temptation or sin. So what logically would not have been a sin for Jesus to create a drink that contained alcohol? Okay, it's, it's not a sin. Another thing is related. Argument is that by creating alcoholic wine, again, Jesus would be promoting drunkenness. So you remember when Jesus um, fed the five thousand, and he got. Plenty of bread and fishes and loaves and fishes, and he made so much extra. He went far beyond what the people needed. Was this? Was he promoting gluttony? No, he was. He just wanted to feed the people. Like, I want to feed them, and hey, he's God. He can create. He always gives uh, an extra portion, a measured portion. So is he promoting gluttony? Of course not. So to abstain from drinking wine because it causes you sin would be like saying don't eat food because you have the potential or even the propensity to sin and commit the sin of gluttony. So either way you look at it, if you're going abstain from wine, you're abstain from everything. So don't eat and no drinking. And that's what legalism does. It, it stops you from doing all these things. The Bible never teaches abstaining but it does teach moderation yeah moderation in everything <laughs> i gotta be moderate on my eating too you know what i mean i don't, nothing. I don't have a problem with you know drinking too I, mean, I don't enjoy it but probably in the kingdom i probably will enjoy the wine made by yeshua so creating a substance that can be abused does not make one responsible when another person foolishly chooses to abuse it. But Yeshua creating this wine was in no sense encouraging drunkenness. So again, there's no biblical reason to understand John 2 as anything other than Jesus performing an amazing miracle by turning water into wine so is drunkenness sinful of course it is because now you're under a different um spirit and that's what they're called right spirits absolutely is is addiction sinful of course so with jesus again turning water into alcoholic wine in any way violating adonai's standard regarding that consumption of alcohol absolutely not so I'm not promoting drunkenness or gluttony you know what I'm promoting freedom in Yeshua he had given us this precious thing called free will and that's the only way we can love him is with our free will we give up our free will to choose his so where there is freedom to drink there is also freedom not to drink there is freedom to be moderate But people take extra and they go beyond and become drunk. So if you cannot do it in moderation, then it turns to sin. And what happens for us believers, we become a bad witness for the cause of Yeshua. So I really haven't seen many Christians with a drinking problem, which led many to the Lord. So if if I had a drinking problem, I probably wouldn't go out and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, about His kingdom, about His kingdom to come and how we will never be able to sin. we have brand new bodies. That would be the furthest thing from my mind. So what happens when you become drunk? Your witness becomes compromised. So believers have the freedom. But if you think you will violate those freedoms that God has given us, don't do it. So what does it teach us? As we continue to invite people to receive Yeshua, which says in Revelations 99, he says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So they too can pass from death unto life and to partake of the most exquisite wine ever created. So right now in our human condition without Jesus, it says, we're dead to sin already. It says, we're children of hell. Hell and the lake of fire was created for Satan and all those who do not receive Christ as their Savior. So what we must do is share the good news of Jesus. Let us pray.
0: Heavenly
2: Father, we you give us your word and you allow us to read it and you allow us to meditate on it and as the Holy Spirit teaches us and convicts us of these areas we thank you that you love us enough to correct us in certain areas you love us enough even to encourage us Lord a righteous man may fall 70 times but he will get up and you are there picking us up every single time So we thank you that with your Holy Spirit living within us, you allow us to have that ability to sin less and less. Thank you for loving us and thank you for giving us your all. And I pray that in return, Lord, our witness, our lives, our all will be given over to you. We love you, we praise you, Lord, and we honor you in all things that we do. In Yeshua's name and Yeshua's authority we pray. And we all sing. Amen. So